Friends, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We made it this far. Colossians chapter 2, that's where we'll be this morning. Thank you, worship team, uh, for leading us in song. I hope you understand that even as we sing, what we're doing is we're preparing our hearts uh, to receive from God in His Word, His truth. And we're reminded of how glorious He is. And so it's because of that that I do ask, during this time, as much as you possibly can, be as undistracted and as focused as, as you're able. Now, this is not just about telling you what to do. It's about the good of your own soul. And so with that, we're in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. If you need a Bible, we have a few in the back. And so you could just raise your hand. Uh, one of our leaders would be happy to get you one. Um, Colossians chapter 2, and this morning we will read verses and study through verses 1 through 5. And God's word reads as follows. For I, Paul, want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith. In Christ. Pray with me, Father, as we enter into your word, uh, may your truths write themselves on our hearts. May they be what moves us and drives us to live more devotedly to you. Thank you for Jesus, who not only has saved us unto himself, but he is the very energy, the very resource that we draw from so that we might grow to be more like him. Thank you that Jesus is all in all. Pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, My first question for you this morning would be this. Does does anybody have cash? Anybody got got cash? Could you just just, want to bless me with with it a little bit? Just maybe just bring it up here real quick. I I don't carry cash. I'm, you know, I live in a cashless society at this point, but I guess you don't. So you don't have to like strut it or nothing, you know, don't show them the, oh my goodness, bro. Okay. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about this real quick. I'm kidding. No, like, give me one. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, you were pulling like 15 bills. It was like, do you mind if I use this real quick? Okay. Um, here it is. Abe, the, you know what number president he was? 16. 16 presidents, right. Emancipation Proclamation, Gettysburg Address, um, shot in a theater, Abe Lincoln. Um, here's the thing. I really don't need it, but I'm grateful that you gave it to me. Um, Because what I wanted to ask you this morning was, how could you detect that this is a true $5 bill? Do you know how to do that? Do you know how to, like, detect whether your money is fake or real? Yeah, you all know the whole, like, hold it up to the light, and then you're like, what am I looking for? (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's Abe Lincoln, (laughs) huh? 
Um, there's actual ways to determine it. And don't worry, brother, I will give you this $5 back. Uh, there's ways that you can determine it, and there's ways that um, have been noted for us to try to do that. One is to feel the texture of the $5 bill. This does feel like a $5 bill. It's got that consistency to it. Uh, you could compare the bill with another of the same denomination in series. In other words, you comp this to a 5 or if anybody wants to, you can bring me a hundred. I'll compare the two. Um, but you would compare it to another five-dollar bill, and you would even compare some of the serial numbers that are on there. Uh, you'll notice that actually a real bill, some of the ink on it will be a little bit raised. It's not just printed on there; it actually has a little bit of a lift to it. Whereas a fake bill would be completely flat. So you would look carefully at the printing quality and kind of assess whether or not it has some of that. In God we trust, amen. Uh, You would look for colored fibers in the paper. It's easy to print that color out on the paper, but it's different when it's in the paper. That's that's different kind of magic. And, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's in there. Oh, I see it. Nope. You examine the serial numbers. You look for security features that have been embedded into the money itself. Uh, I find it interesting that uh, one person writing on how you can differentiate between fake bills and real bills points it down, or boils it down to this. You look for differences, not similarities. Counterfeit bills, if they're any good at all, will be similar to the real ones in many ways. But if a bill differs in just one way, it's probably fake. If a bill differs in just one way, it's probably fake. I think we'd be all really good at finding many of these up here and seeing their similarities. But differences are harder to notice, especially when it comes to something so precious as a $5 bill or a $100 bill. And if you have one, see me later. It's hard to notice the differences when something is of such value. But counterfeits do exist. Um, I think the biggest heist of counterfeit history is a guy who printed out more than $250 million. Almost got away with it, but then the cops got involved. Counterfeit money circulates in our systems every day, and they go unbeknownst to the human eye. You would have no real sense that you're carrying a fake dollar bill in your pocket unless someone pointed it out to you. And what they would need to point out, again, is not the similarities but the differences. I think that what we're seeing in our text this morning and even what we're beginning to head into in the book of Colossians is Paul's argument for this church and Paul talking to this church in light of that same reality, but not with regard to money, with regard to the gospel. There are many people, even in the church, in Paul's day and in our day, who preach a very similar gospel and yet preach an altogether different gospel at the same time. Paul cares so much about this church, as we've already discussed, because this church has faith in Christ, but there are some who would seek to bring into this church beliefs and doctrines about God and about Christ that are different to what Paul taught them. And Paul's answer for them, Paul's desire for them, is to understand the truth. And if they're going to do so, 
They need to understand what the true gospel is so that they can see the differences in the false gospels. Does that make sense? In order for this church to be able to differentiate between what's the truth about God and what's false about God, they need to understand God in truth, and then from there they need to be able to spot the differences. It's the difference between having money that means something and money that means absolutely nothing. And the gospel faith works in exactly the same way. You, you can't have some of Jesus, right? You, you can't have some access to Jesus. You can't have some relationship with Jesus. You can't have a partial relationship with Jesus. You have all of Jesus or you have none of Jesus. And Paul wants to remind this church of that reality, even as it's a church that he's never been to before. But because of the pressures and the dangers that they face in their world, he wants to remind them they need the true Jesus and none other. The way to do that for Paul is twofold. And it'll be the same ways that it'll be for us. Paul, as a faithful minister of the gospel, in two ways, wants to demonstrate and highlight for this church how they can remain faithful even when there's so much opposition, even when there's so much confusion, even when there's so many people that speak into the life of the church that don't truly love God. How are they going to be able to do that? Well, one, they need a ministry of instruction. We're going to see that in verses 2 to 3. But secondly, they need a ministry of protection. They need instruction and they need protection. Instruction and protection. That's what Paul provides for this church. And it's here for us as well because it's what we need. If we're going to grow in Christ, then we need to grow as in, in being instructed in Christ, but we also need to be protected by God's ministry through Christ. And so we pick up here in chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know, Paul says, how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. I think it's important here to stop just for a moment to recognize again the love that Paul has for a church he's never been a part of. And when Paul says he has a great struggle for them, it's, you know, some would take this to mean that Paul is talking about his imprisonment at this point, that Paul is looking to the, the current state of his Christianity, that because he's been so bold for the gospel, he now suffers for it, which is something he talked about in Colossians 1, 24. I rejoice in my sufferings. I don't think that's the same thing Paul is talking about now. It is one thing for Paul to suffer for the gospel, which is his imprisonment. It's another thing for Paul to struggle in light of the gospel. And I think struggle here is more meant to be Paul's ministry. Even though Paul is facing much opposition for the gospel, it doesn't stop him from doing the Lord's work. Paul continues to labor for this church. No matter what happens in his life, he will give everything he has to ensure that this church grows up in the knowledge of Christ. I want you to know how great a struggle, a striving, a labor I have burdened myself with for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me 
face to face. It's as if though Paul reminds this church, and he even reminds us, ministry is not necessarily always about face to face. It's about heart to heart. It isn't about simply the times that we get together. It's about the fact that you and I are united together in Christ. And so if I care about Christ, I will always care about his people. This is Paul's great encouragement to him. It's his encouragement to them, and it's also an encouragement to you. The very reason you have this letter before you is because men and women of God have given their lives to ensure that people who they may never have come face to face with would have the gospel before them so that they might know Christ and live for Christ. Now, what are Paul's instructions? How should this church live in light of that reality? Why would Paul labor so intensely for the sake of the gospel? Why would Paul be willing to endure an imprisonment for the sake of the gospel? Why would he, even though he's in prison, give his life to continue to be a blessing to the church? How is he able to do that and why does he do that? Well, he answers that question for us now in verse 2. And firstly, we see here, Paul has a ministry of instruction. Number one, or in verse two, it says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Three key things here that Paul instructs this church to do. Three key ways that Paul expects them to live their life for Christ. Number one, he writes to them that their hearts may be encouraged. It's something he desires to happen as a result of his ministry. It's instructed to them that they would be encouraged. Their hearts ought to be encouraged. That is the fruit of faithful ministry. Encouragement. You understand what that word means and what it looks like, right? Some translations might have placed the word comforted, but I don't know that I think that gives the right connotation for what Paul's going for. Encouragement can be that, like when you fall down and someone comes over and picks you back up. That can be a source of encouragement. And I think because we are so heartfelt, we tend to think of encouragement in that way. Something has happened to me by which my, my state of being is a bit downcast. I'm a little bit depressed. I'm a little bit sad. I'm a little bit downtrodden. And so I need someone to pick me up. And that's part of encouragement. But encouragement is also being told what to do and how to do it. Encouragement is what your coach does when you're playing in a game. And when your coach gets in your face and says, hey, you need to run the right route, that's encouragement. Hey, you need to make the right block, that's encouragement. Hey, you need to hit the right spike, that's encouragement. Whenever someone steps into our life with the purpose of influence, that's encouragement. Encourage yourselves. Be encouraged. I take it upon myself to do this work so that you would be encouraged. And not only that, it says encouragement for your hearts. 
And this isn't simply that, again, you would feel good. God's desire for you and God's love for you, it transcends way more than your feelings. When, back in Paul's day, when they talked about this word for heart, it didn't just mean how you felt, it meant who you were. It meant everything about you. The heart was viewed as the center of a person's personality. Everything about you was bound to the heart. And so way more than how you feel, you were to be encouraged, Paul writes, as to who you now are, regardless of your feelings. You might not feel like being a Christian today. It doesn't matter. Paul's encouragement, the desire that he has, even as he writes this letter to this church, is that they would be built up. Not just part of them, not just some of them, not just how they felt about Jesus, but all of them. That's a question you should ask yourself. If you're a Christian, have you given all of you over to Christ? Have you ensured that there is no part of your life that escapes the encouragement that comes from faithful ministry, from the preaching of God's word, from the fellowship with God's people, from reading scripture, from praying to the Lord? Is there any ounce of you that you have not given up to Jesus? Paul would have it that all of you should be encouraged by the work of ministry. Paul's desire, Paul's labor, Paul's intensity of work for this church is so that every ounce of them would be built up in Christ. And so it is true for you. Be encouraged. Secondly, here he notes, be knit together in love. Be knit together in love. Paul labors so intensely for this church so that they would grow up in Christ and so that they would together be knit in love. You guys understand what this word kind of means, and I think it's great that, at least in my translation, it kind of notes it that way, that it has this, uh, this effect of bringing together. That's what Paul's aim is. It isn't just that you become a Christian, but it's that y'all become Christians. That's Paul's point. And I'm familiar with the concept of knit together. Hello together. Uh, recently, I went over to the East Coast for a wedding, and I had bought a suit because I was a, a groomsman in this wedding, and I looked really good in that suit, honestly. Um, here's the thing. When I got the suit about four months ago, I was grateful that I got the suit. It was in a box, and I never opened the box. Not for a moment that I think I needed to open that box. I said, why would we need to open this box? The suit's in the box. I'll be fine. Take this suit with me to Jersey. Open it up for the first time ever the night before the wedding. Put on the jacket. It was fresh, honestly. It's a brown suit. I'll wear it someday. And you guys will be like, whoa, can I give you five bucks for it? And I'll be like, no, that's a fake. So then I put the pants on. And I didn't realize that they, like, they didn't finish the pants. Like the bottom part like, went down through my foot all the way out like to that door which meant that I was supposed to apparently of course I knew this but I just you know I wanted a good story 
I was apparently supposed to go back to men's warehouse and have them hem the, the, like, the pants at my ankle. But I had no idea, and the wedding is in 10 hours. So, mi mamá, who is the best ever, my mom said, you're an idiot, but I got you. So she went and did some Puerto Rican magic to that thing. And it literally looked exactly like this. I don't know how she did it, except for I know that she took the garment and she knit it together. She brought it back up so that I didn't look like a mess on wedding day. And instead, I look muy guapo. And in fact, she succeeded. I made my way through, my, through that wedding because of the love of my mother, who would not allow for me to look stupid that day. And she was right. And that's the point. The church doesn't look right when it's not put together. God's people don't look right when they're divided. God's people don't reflect God's glory when they're a huge mess. You need to be knit together. And Paul's point is a little stronger than that. It isn't simply that you need to be knit together. It's that you are. Christ has made it so that we would be unified. Christ has made it so that the many would be one. Christ has made it possible that even though some guys in here love football and others don't, and others like mountain climbing and others don't, and others' favorite color is red and others aren't, and some of you like In-N-Out and some of you don't, and some of you girls love Taylor Swift and some of you don't, and some of you have black hair or brown hair or red hair, and some of you are Puerto Rican, and some of you never even understood what a Puerto Rican is since I got here, that those things don't ultimately hold weight when it comes to Christ. Regardless of our differences, Christ has made it that we would be unified. And he asks us to do the same thing in the same way that he's done it for us. That's what chapter 2 says. It's not just to be knit together. It's to be knit together in love. Is that not how God has made us right with himself? Is it not that God has reconciled us and unified us to himself by his great love? then what hope do we have to be unified with one another? Well, there would be no other way but to do so in God's way, which is in love. That matters most. Why? Is a room full like this, many of you sometimes will be right, and the other part of you will be wrong. Many of you are walking well with the Lord, and some of you are stumbling along the way. Some of you are wrestling the same sins that you've been wrestling for months and years. And some of you have left those things behind. That could cause a lot of division. You know what will help with that? Love. A love that bears burdens. A love that doesn't tolerate sin, but absolutely forgives it. A love that doesn't affirm sin, but a love that exposes it and seeks to help others walk in righteousness. A love that isn't concerned simply with oneself, but is concerned with others. A love that isn't concerned with how people view me, but is concerned with how people view him. 
That love binds us together. Knit together in love. This is Paul's aim for this church. Lastly, Paul has a third implication, a third instruction for us. Not only are we to be encouraged, not only are we to be knit together in love, thirdly, we are to have full assurance. Look at what he says here at the end of verse 2. So that we would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. How can we be sure that our hearts will be encouraged? How how can we know that as we seek to be a unified body of believers that we will do so in love? Well, we'll do that insofar as we have assurance of what we believe. I think oftentimes those things are impossible or those things are hard to come by because we don't truly believe the things that we say we believe. We claim Christ. We say we know Christ. We say we love Christ. But our hearts are always in disarray. We're never content with other people. And I wonder if in part it's because of the end of this verse. We don't have full assurance based on true understanding and knowledge of God and his mystery, which no longer is hidden. It's been laid before us, and it is Christ. And for this church that's wrestling with so many things that are coming into it, Paul gives them this reminder to to be encouraged, to be knit together in love, and to dwell in the riches of full assurance, granted only by a true and right and accurate understanding of Christ. It is the same as with a dollar bill. The only way you can tell the fake one is by knowing the real one. And the only way that this church is going to endure the different things that are coming at it is by seeing Christ as he truly is. If you want assurance of your faith, you don't need to look inwardly. You need to look to him. And many of you, you love the get out of jail free card. You love that in Jesus, you can be saved. So absolutely, give me that. But Jesus has offered you so much more. How can you know that you're saved? Well, you have an understanding and a knowledge of God's mystery in Christ. In whom, verse 3 says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That means that in life, you'll know what to do and you'll know how to do it. Some of you love the knowledge of Christ, but I don't think you necessarily love understanding him. Because understanding him takes a step further, doesn't it? Uh, Understanding is uh, not only knowing that, you know, when you slip this in a vending machine, a soda will come out. It's not actually how it works. You've got to punch in A5, and then you'll get a Dasani water. Nasty. It's knowing what to do and how to do it. It's knowing the full thing, right? It's understanding with completion. It's having a full knowledge, a knowledge that then works and a knowledge that, does, that then lives in a way that reflects that knowledge. And some of you know Christ, but your life doesn't reflect that you understand him or else you would be given to him. You would live for him. 
You would walk in his ways. You would obey his commandments. You would delight in his word. You would delight in his church. You, you would come and you would delight in the preaching of God's word. You would delight in the singing of hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. You would delight in fellowship with one another. You would delight even if someone in this room turned to you and said, you're not walking in the right way. That might be hard for many of you. And it's maybe because you don't understand him. It's maybe because you have not been given to walking in him. Paul wouldn't delight in that for us. Paul would say the way to know that you're a Christian is to see Christ as he is and then to walk continuously in the light of his truth. It's beholding Christ day after day after day after day. This, this is Paul's instruction to this church. It's a ministry that instructs us to be encouraged. It's a ministry that instructs us to be knit together in love. And it's a ministry that tells us, if you want to know you are saved, give yourself to Jesus day after day after day. Don't turn anywhere else. You don't need self-help. You don't need the wisdom of professors or teachers. You don't need the wisdom of your government. You don't need the wisdom of this person or that person. You surely don't need the wisdom of the celebrities that are on your Twitter feed or your Instagram reels. You need Christ day after day. That's Paul's ministry of instruction. But Paul knows it's not that easy. We still struggle, don't we? And we still wrestle with the many voices that seek to tamper with who Christ is in our lives. And so Paul's ministry of instruction is coupled with his ministry of protection. Look at verses 4 and 5. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Why is Paul so concerned about this church's encouragement? Why is he so concerned that they don't just have their felt needs met, but that their entirety of their, uh, the entirety of their lives is given to Christ? Why does he care about their unity? Why does he even care that they would be assured of what Christ has done? Because there's many that sound like Jesus, that don't care about Jesus. There are many that will bring in arguments that reflect something that you might see in your Bible, reflect something that is true from heaven, but it reeks of the pit of hell. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. It's a way of saying, I don't want you to be persuaded. I don't want you to fall into a trap. I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to go the wrong way. With what? Plausible arguments. Do you understand what Paul is saying there? Paul's not saying that the false teachers are coming in with, this, uh, with these arguments that are like so out of left field that all of us would see them and go, man, that's really dumb. Like, I would never believe that. Like, that makes no sense. That's not what Paul said. Paul says, I don't want you to be deceived by plausible arguments. 
In other words, I don't want you to be deceived by arguments that make a lot of sense. Sometimes the arguments that steep into the church, they seem to make all kinds of sense. The arguments that we hear out there, they seem to make a lot of sense. My body, my choice. That would seem to make a lot of sense. Unless it's vaccination. But it would seem to make a lot of sense, right? Yeah. I should have nothing to do with what you're going through. That's not my responsibility. That's all on you. Doesn't that make sense? It does unless you read your Bible. Love wins. Doesn't that make sense? That seems to make sense. We want love all the time. That's great. But that's not what's meant. What's meant is you tolerate all of my evil and I'll tolerate some of you when I don't feel like I'm upset at you. Right? Or what about this one? Love your neighbor as yourself. That one I didn't get from out there. We all know where that's at. Everyone uses it today to point at you as being a bad Christian because you don't love people the way that they think you should love them. Doesn't that sound right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Stop being mean. Stop telling people what to do. Stop telling people the truth. Stop telling people what you think God says. That's not what God says. Of course, that's not what God says. God would just have you love everyone, tolerate everyone, affirm everyone, be nice to everyone. Isn't that what Jesus said? Yeah, of course Jesus said that. He also said he so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shouldn't have to perish but could have eternal life. You need a full understanding of God's word and you need to give yourself to the steady diet of God's word so that you can discern the many reasonable, sensible, plausible arguments that will come into your life. And so, we're so thankful for Paul who recognizes that and discerns that and warns us of that. And and can I use this as an opportunity as well to then say to you, you should be grateful for the people in your life that warn you from the half-truths that are out there. Be grateful that God has not only brought you to a loving church and that God has brought leaders in your life that care for you and want to see you grow, but many of you have good and godly parents. Many of you have a multitude of good and godly influences in your life. And sure, you could keep going your entire life fighting every ounce of wisdom that they ever bring into your life. You can always think you know better. You can always think that they're dumb. You can always think they're too strict. You can always think they don't know enough. But listen, they've been there and they've done that. And especially those who have committed their life to Christ, they have seen these arguments come in and out of their lives more times than you could count. They know something and they're trying to help you to not be deceived by those very same things. Listen to wisdom. Listen to warnings. Because they don't always just come from Paul. They'll come from your mom. They'll come from your dad. They'll come from your small group leader. They'll come from your pastor. They'll come from people who care about God and therefore care about you. Listen to them so that you might not be deceived.
by these plausible arguments. Paul rounds this out by, in verse 5, with these words, Though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness, the firmness of your faith in Christ. And Paul, as we said, has not been with this church, and he has no idea if he'll ever have the opportunity to. But again, he circles back here to the very beginning of this chapter, reminding this church that he doesn't need to be with them to be united to them. He he doesn't need to be in the same town to care about them. He doesn't need to step into their church to be an influence in their church. He's with them in spirit. He cares about them. And it's like he's with them now because they are all together united in Christ. And he warns them of these arguments because though he's not with them, he has an influence on them. And as they continue to deny the lies that often so much look like the truths we believe, he wants them to stand firm. And he rejoices to see their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. That is the ultimate and truest joy in any ministry. And it's the ultimate joy that we seek in your life. Listen, for me, it's a joy if you walk with Jesus now in 180, absolutely. I'd love to hear that at 20, 25, 30, 40, 50, you're still doing the same because you've heeded to Paul's warning and you've accepted his instruction. You've given your life to be encouraged, to be built up every part of you into the image of his son. You've given your life to other people who see life the same way because they also have been given eyes of faith. You know a good church when you see one. You know a a Bible-preaching church when you see one. You know a church that cares more about Christ than its own name when you see one. Right now, you get brought here every day. I don't know why you come. Maybe it's just because people force you here. Maybe it's because you want to be here. That's great. But I pray that with Paul's warning and his instructions you would be certain of Christ's work in your life and you would be certain of what it is that you need to look for in this life as you continue to grow and mature in Christ. That you would deny any argument that would tamper with God's word. That you would lay aside anything that would seek to tamper or mess with who Jesus is in full. And and that you would recognize the only way you're going to do that is by committing your life to seeing Christ in truth day after day. It's only by beholding him in truth that we'll be able to expose all the lies. That's true of your life now, and it'll be true of your life so long as you live for him. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. We recognize, Lord, that we need you We need your grace and your mercy both to draw us out of the wrath that is to come but also to secure us in the present, to assure us that we love you. And Lord, we thank you that in Christ we have that all-sustaining, all-powerful grace that works in us. We're not going at this alone. 
we depend on you to work mightily in us. In fact, it's because of Christ in us that there's any hope at all, that we can make it through this life honoring you and that we will live with you for an eternity. Make us bold for the gospel. Make make us courageous in the gospel. And may we see the fruit of the gospel in our lives. May it assure us of our standing before you. And in all of it, would it be to the praise of your glorious grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.